One of the problems about being a pastor is that you have the opportunity to reveal every stupid thing that you've done. And uh, I will take that opportunity this morning to share one of my rare moments of stupidity that just shines above all others. We had uh, in a previous house a a car arrangement so that uh, the cars were not exactly side by side and parked, but one just slightly diagonal behind the other. So therefore you had to be uh, careful in backing out to not run into your car. I had got into my car, looked in the mirrors, looked in the uh, rear view in the place where I normally would have the car, but to my horror, as I backed out quickly, I realized I'd parked the car on the opposite side, and it came to my mind with a loud thud. It's a sickening thud. You go out knowing good and well what, what you're about to look at is going to be several hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of damage on both cars. Have you ever tried to explain to your insurance agent how both of your cars got damaged at the same time by the same person, and one of them was parked, well, you think that was bad. I'm going to tell you it gets worse. After paying the stupid tax on that, um, several months later, I did it again. <laughs> Boom! To this day, if you will go out to the blazer, you'll see a nice little bent-up, portion on the bumper. I thought, you know, if you've done something so stupid you get physically sick from it, I thought, I just don't have the guts to pay it again, go to the same mechanic again, and talk to the insurance person again. I don't have the guts to do that. Now I (laughs) proclaim to you what I did. And what's so funny is you come listening to me after I do such stupid things. (laughs) What are you doing sitting here, you know? Well, you know, what... I experience, I I think that we somewhat sense as we read Genesis 9. In Genesis 3, God gives mankind the world on a platter and he calls it good. It is beautiful as far as purposes. And man, boom, destroys it. Just by disobeying disobeying the one act God told him not to do. And the world has fundamentally changed The world is a dangerous place, not because God made it dangerous, but because man made it dangerous and put the effects on themselves, reaping sinfulness and selfishness throughout generation after generation. And so you come to Genesis 6 through 8, and you get the sense that God is balling up the world and throwing away and says, let me start over. Let me start over. And he takes the man Noah who walked with God, received the grace of God, and he takes their family, and you get the idea, God's going to start all over again. And wouldn't you know, you read in chapter 9, God hands the world to mankind, and boom, they do it again. So, this is for every one of you who are determined and stubborn in their stupidity, who repeats folly after folly after folly to their own sickness. If you're like me, this chapter's for you. Genesis chapter 9. And let's turn there and we'll be standing in, in honor of, as we read this together. And just as a reminder, there is uh, online now at the website uh, the sermons uh, on podcast. And uh, you, if you've ever missed one of these in the series, you can go back to that and listen to it really easy, fairly easy. Let's stand as we read this together. Genesis chapter 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
and the fear of you shall be on every beast of the sky and every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you and I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And God spoke to Noah and to his sons with them, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem. Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and populating a vineyard. And he drank of the vine and became drunk and uncovered himself and inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, and servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. You may be seated. God is starting a new world order, and he shares with them some guiding forces that will be in this world. Forces still in existence today. And so I want to share with them, share with you these as we go through. And we get to verse 1 and 2, and we get in verse 1 and 2, and it sounds kind of deja vu. It sounds very similar. In fact, it is. If you compare it with chapter 1, verse 28, you see many similarities, but I think it's the differences that stand out that talk about how different this world is. And so, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, just like 1, 28. That verse says, God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But 1, 28 goes on and says, and subdue it, subdue the earth, have dominion over the fish, over all the animals, every living thing that moves on the earth. But in chapter 9, you do not have the word fear, or you do not have the word subdue and take dominion. Instead, you've got the word, verse 2, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, every animal, everything that moves on this earth and in the sea. And so we have the first force that will dominate in this world, in this new world order. That is the force of the fear of man. 
The fear of man becomes a major influence in the way this world operates as you and I know it. Evidently, something was different in the relationship between the animals with Adam and Eve to what it is today as well with Noah. There's several reasons why this was important. First of all, consider Noah's situation. As Genesis 6 through 8 explains, Noah was in the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark uh, for a whole year with these animals. It could very well be that these animals were very familiar, especially in the pre-flood relationship with Noah and his descendants. And so God puts a fear in animals to put them away from Noah. The second reason why this is very important is found in the next passage. Uh, verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things even as the green herbs. He adds meat to the menu for mankind. So it's important that animals have a fear of man. He is, God is interested in the survival of animals. And so, you know, how, uh, well, it just would not be the same if uh, some of you guys, Sam went out and uh, went dove hunting and called the doves to him so he could shoot them. Uh, that's not the same. You need to have a fear of mankind. And so that's what's put into these animals to drive them and uh, have survival instinct. Now, why it is that meat's been added to the diet, I do not know. There may have been some kind of environmental change that, uh, uh, from the pre-flood to post-flood that required more protein in the diet. I do not know uh, all of that other than the fact that food's been added to the diet. But God gives some stipulations in verse 4. You shall not eat flesh with its life. Don't eat animals alive. And make sure the blood is drained. Because he adds special value to the blood and says that the life is in the blood. That phrase, life blood, uh, is to be removed. And therefore, there is a value on animal life that we do not drink the blood. And it's interesting that to this day, there are still some tribes and groups that do practice this of drinking the blood. I was there with one group uh, that did that in, in Kenya. Uh, where they would drink the cow's blood, uh, mix it with milk. And, and those who became believers made this a dietary change so that they could stand out and be different as being a, a Maasai believer, which is, you know, means something different for them. It means not drinking blood. And so that's something that they applied uh, to their own life. Uh, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, God explains, says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And so God equates blood with the life of that animal. And then verse 5, not only does he talk about animals, he then talks about mankind. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require. In other words, if an animal was used to destroy mankind, to kill a human, then God would hold that animal accountable, as well as from the hand of man. And from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. I think this is playing back uh, to Cain and Abel. Remember, God did not have to give such directions to Cain and Abel and to Adam and Eve because sin was not in the picture. But one of the very first things that is recorded after sin enters is Cain killing Abel. And then the Bible is, describes the world as filled with violence. Murder was rampant. Life was frivolous and counted frivolous. Uh, and so God understood and saw what's going on and made sure that there was protection uh, found in this. You see, from the hand of every man's brother... Yes, Cain, we are our brother's keeper. And so God is making allusion to that at that point. And it says, I will require the life of men. All right, now, quickly sum up. It's like Genesis 1.28 with major differences. The fear of man. Genesis 1.28, God said this was good. Remember, good means that 
It was built for the purpose for which God made it, and it reflected the nature of God. In Genesis chapter 9, you don't have the declarative statement, this is good. Why? Because it no longer reflects the nature of God. And man fulfilling the purpose that God gave him, well, that's kind of iffy at this point. And so God does not give that declarative statement, it is good. And so we come to verse 6. We find here the second force at operating in this world. There is the fear of man. And I was thinking about that uh, as we were yesterday in in downtown. Uh, There's a lot of stuff going on downtown. One of which was a dog parade, a dog run, of which I happened to get stuck in the parking lot going out to the main street right at the beginning of this parade. And I watched hundreds of dogs pass by. I thought, you know what? What would happen if I drove right in the midst of this? You know, Uh, our pets... Uh, be bad in the news, but you know, our pets, they have a relationship with us because of fear of man. They are conditioned, ultimately. Uh, yes, they're cute and they have some personality, but ultimately at the heart, there is the fear of man. And that's why we always say that, well, you can't take the wild out of animals. Why? Because there's the fear of man. But in verse 6, we see the second force, and that is the fear of consequences. Verse 6, God starts working with mankind by giving them consequences to change their behavior. You see in verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by his blood shall be shed. By man his blood shall be shed, for the image of God he made them. Now, here, yes, you have the mention of capitalism. I had a debate teacher in college uh, that uh, she uh, was a believer, but she would make a stand against uh, capital punishment. She said, you know, we do not do capital punishment because it is something that fits into the law. And the law is done away with. We now live in the age of grace. And she was referring to the uh, the commands given in Moses and and retribution and punishment for those who commit murder. The only problem with that is that in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Moses and the law have not yet come upon the picture. What you have here is a command to mankind that is outside of the law. Uh, So yes, God is bringing out that there should be a place where man is to die, and that's when they kill and murder someone else. Why on earth? Well, here's what God brings out. First of all, I would make you note, verse 5, that God is the one doing the reckoning. And the emphasis, you see it repeated in verse 5 and verse 6, that God will require, God will reckon, uh, God will require, again, it's repeated, God has an accountant uh, about this. And verse 6, he says that God is the plaintiff. God is the plaintiff. In a murder case, it's not just the victim who's the plaintiff, but according to Genesis 9-6, God is the plaintiff. Why? Because mankind has been given inherent value. It's been uh, conferred on that person because they exist. Why? What is that value? They are in the image of God. And to slaughter, to kill someone in this person is to attack the image of God. God takes that personal and he becomes the plaintiff in the case. Now, I think there's some interesting things to bring out in this. Uh, First of all, it has no mention as to um, who the victim is. Why? Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how bright, dim-witted a person is. It doesn't matter what race there are. There was only one race at this time. Uh, It it does not matter all these uh, things that we may put in uh, into this. It doesn't matter uh, how mature they are. Let me just say this. It doesn't matter at whose hand this murder takes place including your own hand, suicide, 
is something that it doesn't matter whose hand your life was taken by, even if your own God is the plaintiff and you're attacking the image of God by doing so. And so if that ever comes as a passing thought, as an easy way to get out of the problems you're in, consider the view from God's point of view. Do not attack him by doing so. That is not your place to do. Now, it seems like the only condition in this is that this is a man or woman with blood. doesn't matter how old they are. Let me just bring out babies. If they have blood, whether inside the womb or outside the womb, if the blood is shed, God is the plaintiff. And the attack is made on the image of God. And yes, that supersedes woman's right to choose. That image of God that is inherent within the value of a person. Where do I get that? Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Outside of the law of Moses, here it is, and applies to all mankind. The fear of consequences. The person who does this will be executed. Now, notice verse 6. By man his blood shall be shed. God gives some of his authority to mankind. Here in this passage, you have the, the formulation of government. And God gives mankind the ability to execute. Now, I'm not going to say that this is some vigilante justice. This is something that's done within the, the people's uh, agreed government. You see this later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, as well as Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 4. I encourage you to write those down and read them later. I cannot deal with them at this point. But simply summed up, God extends authority to the government, especially, uh, specifically the authority over life and death to encourage good and to discourage evil. Why is this important? One, because mankind has already proven themselves before the flood. One of the first things they did, kill. That's what selfishness will breed. Second, mankind is active in the slaughter of animals. There needs to be a barrier, a distance between the slaughter of animals for food and the slaughter of mankind for selfish pursuits. And so God puts the barrier on that, knowing our violent tendencies that come from being selfish. And then in verse 7, As for you, be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. It is the consequences that change behavior at this point. Uh, God is not just doing this to rehabilitate the murderer. He's not doing to uh, prevent uh, repeat offenses. He's doing it simply because of the image of God uh, that he enacts this penalty. Uh, and so there's a difference. And, and consequences change us, do they not? We just got a ticket this past week because uh, our license and registrations have been expired. And we, we weren't aware, but now we've got a, a hefty fee to pay. It's going to compel me, it's going to convince me to contact DMV. And you know what? I can't do it online. We've got to go there. That cursed place where, where time means nothing. We've got to go there. Forgive me, any DMV workers out there. Um, but we've got to go there, and we will do it gladly. Why? Because we are full-faced with the consequences of it, and it changes our behavior. Well, God is doing the same thing and bringing consequences to bear as a motivation, as a force in this world. But friends, we're going to keep on reading. We're going to find there's another force uh, in verse uh, 8 and 9. It says, Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with them, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. 
And with all the animals in verse 10, verse 11, here it is. This is my covenant. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Here is God's initiative covenant. He started this. He's responsible for it. He's going to keep it going. And that is simply this. God will never destroy this world with flood again. And you see this repeated, the sign of the covenant, verse 12, a perpetual covenant in verse 12, a covenant that is for all descendants. You see that in verse 9, with you and your descendants, I can put my name there. God has put a covenant, established covenant with me. I'm a descendant of Noah. Uh, And he has told me, he has given me a covenant that he will never destroy this world. He will never destroy my world by flood. And you see that again repeated, I will remember in verse 15, my covenant. And so he puts a sign of the covenant in verse 12. And the sign of the covenant is a rainbow, a bow in the sky. Evidently, uh, because there was no rain prior to this flood, there was no clouds. This is a new thing altogether. And God places this this work of beauty uh, to remind him of his word. And so we have this going out to us. Now, I understand that the rainbow now is a uh, sign, a symbol of homosexuality. But listen, before that and beyond that, it is also, and, and more importantly, a sign of, get this, God's mercy and faithfulness. Now, here's the thing. We didn't, we didn't realize what a, a rainbow was. And there were countless thousands of millions of people that do not know what a rainbow is for. But yet, God's blessings extend to them. Let me tell you, God has been gracious to you when you did not even know it. God has been merciful to you when you did not know it. And when we see a rainbow in the sky, it reminds me of God's truthfulness to his word, how he's given me mercies that I did not even know. And there they are. But here's the main thing that you need to remember. God is true to his covenant. We're going to get back to that because it's going to be very important. Uh, And when we come and wrap this up at the end. Now, we see this going out. It's initiated by God. No conditions. No conditions. In other words, I don't have to live a certain way. God's going to do it. I could be out drunk. I could be out uh, doing any number of things. I could be committing murder and see a rainbow. And there, God's promises are still true. The conditions are, there are no conditions. It's all up to God to keep this. It's initiated by him. It's universal. And I would say it's eternal in its nature for perpetual generations in verse 12. Verse 16, an everlasting covenant. It is eternal. We will not ever have to wonder about this. Even though the Bible says later on and First uh, and Second Peter that God will destroy the world by fire, this word will still be true even then. Now, that's the third factor, but we're going to keep on reading. We'll find the fourth factor that uh, we all experience every day. We keep on going and we get to verse 18. Noah's sons come out, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these, these are the sons. From these, the whole earth was populated. Okay. Now, uh, we're about to experience something here. Uh, Noah's going to come out, and you're going to see in verse 20... A lot of similarities with Genesis chapter 3. Especially in the Hebrew text, a lot of the words used were words used in Genesis chapter 3 to bring a comparison, a similarity to when Adam and Eve did in their sin and what uh, Noah and his sons did in their sins. Now, uh, what you got, Noah, he's a farmer, has a vineyard, and gets drunk. This lets me know that several years have passed. 
be able to produce wine, having it fermented, and he gets drunk and he gets uncovered. Uh, he's, he has no clothing on. Uh, now, let me just say, the Bible is, has some mixed messages in various places and times about wine and alcohol. Uh, but one thing you do see throughout is that uh, every time you see it, there is usually a decrease in morality, an increase in stupidity. Okay? And I found that God lets you be stupid if you want to be. Okay? I've just shared with you uh, Exhibit A on that. Okay? God will let you be stupid if you want to be. And I wasn't even drunk, imagine, uh, uh, when I had that. But, you know, when you, when you get drunk, you do stupid things. David tried to do that with Uriah, uh, tried to let loosen his uh, moral standard, but Uriah proved that he was more principled drunk than David was sober. Here you have Noah. He just, you know, uh, has no clothes on in the tent. Now, what, even though that is a place of shame, uh, especially in the ancient culture and in the Eastern culture, then you have to compound it, uh, Ham coming in uh, with his son Canaan. Okay? Uh, and they see this. So I'm going to tell you, no matter what time you live in, no matter what culture you live in, it's always a bad thing to see your father naked. Okay? Uh, but what you got here is that someone not only saw these things, but then made uh, jokes about it disgrace the father, disgrace the father uh, with what he did and ridiculed his father. Now, you have mentioned the, that Ham is the father of Canaan. Uh, this is important. You remember Moses is writing this and is writing it during the time of the Exodus, away, going from Egypt, going into the promised land, which is also known as Canaan, where the descendants of Canaan live, and God had given them commands to annihilate the people found in that promised land in Canaan because of their sexual aberrations and their idolatry. And this is important to keep in mind because God is giving the history of the Canaanites here at this point uh, and the understanding behind these things. And so Ham and his son Canaan are there in on this act. Ham. No one names their son Ham anymore. But here is Ham, and he sees it. And then he goes and tells his brothers, Hey guys, you want to see the old man acting a fool? Check him out in the tent. And he ridicules him. Proverbs 17.9 says, He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates friends. The problem is in his reaction. Friends, you've got to be careful. When you see someone making mistakes that you don't look at them with a condescending attitude and say, see, they're a fool all along. They're just proving themselves and you take joy in that. That is what Ham is doing with his own father. Again, you see the similarities, the covering and the nakedness, just as in Genesis chapter 3. It's part of the reason why these words were used besides the fact that's what really happened. Uh, but the, the, the brothers, Shem and Japheth, come in and they cover things up so that they will not have to see this sight. Noah wakes up, verse 24. He knows. Evidently, words out in the camp. Folks know about this. Maybe they're snickering. Maybe they're making some remarks. We do not know. But Noah is aware of what his son has done. And so he gives out a prophecy. Because of this factor of sin, he gives out this prophecy and a blessing and cursing on his descendants. Cursed be Canaan. Second time a curse is ever done against a, a human being. The first one was against Cain. Now this one's against Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. In other words, Canaan, the son of Ham, will serve the other sons of Ham. This is something that we're going to continue to do. Why is that important to make that distinction that he was going to serve his brothers? 
Because I'm going to tell you that probably a hundred some years ago, 150 years ago, there was probably someone in this area, North Carolina, that would use this passage and talk about why all Africans should be slaves. And they would say that the Africans came from the descendants of Ham, and therefore it is right for them to be servants and slaves other people. And they would use this as a biblical argument for slavery. Now the problem with that is it's not correct interpretation of the text. He's talking about servants to his brothers. Servants to his brothers, as well as Ham as his descendants, had already been given the stamp of the image of God, and therefore they are human beings and they should be treated as images of God. And I just want you to know that. Be aware of it, because that argument still floats out there from time to time. Uh, but what he's talking about is he's referring to the future descendants of Canaan, and he's saying, you know what? I can, by the work of God, Noah can see that the descendants of, Noah, of Canaan are going to have the same si- simple practices as Canaan. Same sexual aberrations that will develop. And because of that, there will be a continued pronouncement of condemnation on them because of their continued practice in the same vein of Canaan and his father Ham. So a servant of servants, he shall be to his brother. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Shem, this is where the Semitic groups come from. Uh, This is where the Jews come from. And so he identifies Shem with a relationship with God, the God of Shem. This is someone that knows God, has a relationship with him. May the blessings of God be upon this one. May Canaan serve him. Verse 27, may God, God enlarge Japheth. This is where the Greeks and many Gentiles come from. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. In other words, may they be under the protection of the family of Shem, in the tents of Shem. Now, I think this is interesting when you take this in a, in a very literal sense. In that day and time, when Moses was writing this, there was a very special tent in the tribe of Shem, or the family of Shem. It was the tabernacle of meeting. It was the place where God would meet with mankind. And as Ziph is saying, you know, in the tents of Shem will be a beautiful place. May Japheth and his descendants be under their protection. May they be under the protection of God's presence. May they too find place in the meeting of the Lord. And it's going to point to another covenant that will come later on. May God enlarge Japheth. May he dwell in the tents of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. Now, that's the Noahic covenant. I've talked about that a little bit. There's an Abrahamic covenant God gave later on in Genesis 12, also in Genesis 16, where God gave through the family of Abraham blessings for all people. There will be a Davidic covenant later on where God gives a covenant where there would be a line that comes from David that would reign eternally. But then, friends, you come to the Gospels and you have a new covenant. A new covenant. The same power that's behind the Noahic covenant is the same power that's behind the new covenant. When Jesus comes at a table, at a table, and he says, I want to give you a new covenant. This is a new testament. And there's going to be a sign, not a rainbow, but it's going to be my blood shed for you, my body given for you. And here is your sign to know that you're a part of this covenant. Do you partake in the Lord's Supper? Do you take of the bread? Do you drink of the wine to show the symbolism that you are part of God's family, that you have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Friends, uh, this is the same force that's behind this. And you'll find throughout the Old Testament that there is pointing, pointing, pointing to this new covenant of what's going to happen. The Noahic covenant points to it. But listen, I want to read to you from Jeremiah. 
Chapter 31, verse 30 through 34. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the days I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God. They shall be my people, and they shall not uh, teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. He says there's going to be a covenant one day that will take care of the heart problem. And the sin factor will be dropped. You see, the problem, Noah was thinking, you know, I'm in a new scene. I've got a new place, got new associates, and everything's going to be good. Friends, sin, sin's not like that. It goes with you. I remember uh, it wasn't too long ago we went on a Christmas uh, break and went to uh, Julie's parents who are here with us and and on our way our daughter got sick on Christmas Day in the car we were halfway there uh, in about a three and a half trip three and a half hour trip and we're thinking what do we do well we'll just hope for the best <laughs> we'll go there and uh, you know wouldn't you know it I got sick too I got sick they were opening presents I was quarantined in the back room you know and then you know we left but you know the sickness remained. It got with Julie's mother. Then it got to her brothers, and, and they were in different places. But yet, it, see, it, didn't, it had nothing to do with a new scene, new associates. It was a virus. It was a sickness that came on. That's how sin is. It is inherited within us. It doesn't matter if we try to reform our lifestyle, get new associates. We have a heart problem that goes with us where we go. God is saying through the Word of God, there's going to be a new covenant someday that's going to take care of that heart problem. There's going to be a law written not on tablets of stone, but the fleshly tablets of your heart. That God's going to give you a new desires. No one will have to tell you, hey, you need to go know God because you will already have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. Friends, that's what Jesus did on the cross. On that cross, you have the descendant of Shem uh, on the cross. You had uh, the descendants of Japheth, the Romans, executing him on the cross with a capital punishment enacted from Genesis 9-6. Then you have the descendant of Ham, Simon the Serene, that was bearing in servitude the cross himself. You have in the act all the descendants coming together. And there in that moment, the tents were enlarged so that if anyone wants to meet with God, they can meet with him. What about this rainbow? This sign of the covenant? I've thought about this. I thought, well, you know, the Bible talks about the earth being destroyed one day by the fire. What about this rainbow, this sign of the covenant that's supposed to last forever? What's God going to do with that? Well, I came across a verse in Revelation chapter 4. And this, this is, I like this. Revelation chapter 4. Jesus, or, uh, John, got a, a revelation of the heavenly courtroom. And there, being brought up, he saw... The throne room itself. Revelation 4.2. Immediately I was in the spirit. Behold a throne set in heaven. And one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper. And a star of stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. In an appearance like an emerald. Do you know a rainbow is a really a full circle? We just see a part of it. God sees the entirety of it, of what he has done for us. And God says, you know what? I made that rainbow. I made it to symbolize my mercy, my truthfulness to God's 
to my word and I will not do away with it. I will put it and I will make it decoration in the heavenly throne room as a reminder for all who come here that I am true to his word. Why is that important? If he was true to his word in the rainbow and in the Noahic covenant, he is true. When God says to you, I've given my life for you, my blood is shed for you. If anyone will come to me and confess me that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved from the wrath of God for your sins. And so the Bible says, you know what, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also, where you can see this heavenly rainbow. Why is that important? Because I know it's the same force that's behind the flood. It's the same force that's behind the word of God that says, you are forgiven, you are my child, and I will give you a new heart, a new life. Friends, that is why this is important. And let me tell you, Let me tell you, if there was ever a worldwide flood, just throw away your Bible. Just throw away your Bible. You won't need it anymore. You won't need it anymore because it's not true. But isn't it interesting? There's no record of a worldwide flood since that point in time. Why? Because God said it wouldn't. Just like God said he wouldn't, he said, I will forgive you. And just like he said, I will forgive you, he said, I will raise you up to be with me. Let me ask you, that's God's covenant. Have you taken him up on his word? Have you partaken of the sign of the covenant? Eating the bread, drinking the juice, symbolizing that Jesus died for me. His blood was shed for me. Yes, Lord, thank you for forgiving me of my sins. And have you did the human reaction to that covenant, that sign of the covenant. Being baptized and say, Lord, all my life I want to be identified with you. I'm not ashamed. That's the invitation. I'm not inviting you to get new associates, new friends, new place. But God's inviting you to have a new heart. It should have been nice if Noah had one. The world might have been different. But alas, he did not. But what Noah did not have, could not have, and hoped and longed for You and I can look back and see God's working to provide. Will you take it? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the covenant that you gave to Noah and to me, to all those who descend from him. Thank you for the power that's behind it. It testifies in a world with sin, in a world with consequences, in a world where there's fear of man, there's still the faithfulness of your word. And your word says to me, be forgiven. Follow me. You will have eternal life. You are a new creation. And that where Jesus is, I will be. And that the spirit of God is given upon me. I've been sealed by a spiritual transaction. And where I go, you go with me. Thank you for the sure sign of the truthfulness and faithfulness of your word. But Lord, woe to us if we hear such good news and we treat it as so much trivia. God, I pray that every heart here would experience a new heart, a working that you alone can give. I pray this in your precious name. Amen. I invite